Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Bitcoin hits its latest, biggest milestone yet. A OnePlus co-founder's latest startup is nothing, but it bought something essential. I'll explain why this who's on first routine might be interesting. Also, why government antitrust action has a tendency to open the litigation floodgates. And if you've been hearing about that new app, Dispo, I've got an explainer for you because that's what I'm here for. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. I promise not to do this again until Bitcoin either crosses $100,000 or goes back below $10,000. We are bounded on either end, basically. We can't be in the business of mentioning the price movements of crypto all the time. But I did think it was worth mentioning that this morning, Bitcoin briefly passed the $50,000 per coin mark for the first time ever. I know we've been trying to keep our eyes on the resurgence of crypto generally over the last six months, but I think it's also worth pointing out the speed of this current rally, quoting Bloomberg. The world's largest cryptocurrency jumped as much as 4.9% to 50548 and is now up 70% so far this year. Bitcoin paired its gain after setting the record high, and Ether, a rival crypto, hit a record on Friday and is up about 140% year-to-date. After ending last year with a fourth-quarter surge of 170% to around $29,000, Bitcoin token jumped to $40,000 seven days later. It took just nearly six weeks to breach the latest threshold, buoyed by endorsements from the likes of Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, and Elon Musk. Bitcoin traded for a few cents for several years after its debut more than a decade ago. Whether it's Musk, MasterCard, or Morgan Stanley, the mood, music, and momentum is impossible to ignore, said Anthony Trenchev, managing partner and co-founder of Nexo in London, one of the biggest crypto lenders. To the annoyance of many, the Bitcoin Express has left the station, end quote. MicroStrategy Incorporated doubled down on its big bet on Bitcoin. The enterprise software maker said Tuesday that it would sell $600 million in a convertible bond with the intention of adding to its Bitcoin stash. This is the second time in three months that the Tyson's Corner Virginia-based company issued debt to fund the purchase of Bitcoin. The 400% rally over the past year comes amid a backdrop of near-zero borrowing rates from central banks and unprecedented stimulus from governments in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Bitcoin advocates have criticized the moves as money printing, even though inflation remains subdued, end quote. I did want to come back to that quote about the train leaving the station because it mentioned MasterCard adopting Bitcoin or at least cryptocurrency. I don't think we mentioned that. And also, it wasn't as big a story as that headline makes. But also, they mentioned Morgan Stanley in that quote. And over the weekend, I did hear rumors that major Wall Street houses are facing virtually a revolt from their traders who are eager to be allowed to finally go whole hog on crypto trading. Counterpoint Global, Morgan Stanley's $150 billion investing arm, is reportedly considering adding Bitcoin to its portfolio of high-growth assets. And remember, there is no Bitcoin ETF to speak of yet. So I wonder if the long-promised tipping point where Wall Street gets to get let loose on the crypto markets is actually upon us, and if that might be what is going on right now. So this is a bit of an explainer because it's based on an interesting raise that I actually passed on recently. 
Carl Pai is the co-founder of OnePlus, the maker of those stylish Android smartphones that managed to carve out a niche for itself in the Android ecosystem. Pai raised eyebrows by leaving OnePlus last year to found a new company. He raised further eyebrows by naming that new company Nothing. Nothing had some interesting investors, Kevin Lin, co-founder of Twitch, Steve Huffman, co-founder and CEO of Reddit, and Tony Fidel, who created the iPod at Apple and went on to found Nest Labs. Then, last week, GV, Alphabet's venture arm, not only led a $15 million Series A for nothing, but it was the sole investor in the round. Now, according to a UK filing, Nothing has raised that money to acquire Essential, Andy Rubin's now-defunct smartphone brand. Does this raise enough eyebrows in terms of what Nothing might be doing in what clearly looks to be the gadget space? I think so. Quoting 9to5Google, This means that all existing trademarks, logos, and the entire Essential brand are now the intellectual property of Pi's Alphabet-invested startup, although it is unclear how this affects any of the patents currently held by Essential. While this does not necessarily mean that nothing is entering the smartphone market, it could be a signal of intent to do so in the not-too-distant future. Essential itself had been working on its own home smart hub and speaker that would run Ambient OS. The device was originally planned to launch in late 2017, but never made it to market. Nothing has committed to launching its first smart devices in the first half of this year. It's also not clear if former engineers from Essential have also joined Pi's startup as part of this envelopment. As it stands, the process seemingly only includes the branding and trademark portfolio. One could speculate that this is a play by Nothing to access Essential's patent catalog with numerous patents relating to voice setup instructions and voice-enabled home setup. With a major focus for Nothing being on smart devices and therefore smart home tech, this would allow even faster development of enhanced technologies as the brand grows rapidly, end quote. But again, what is Nothing actually doing? Well, quoting Bloomberg around that GV raise from a week ago that I passed on reporting a week ago, quote, Carl Pye said his London-based startup called Nothing was developing a pair of wireless headphones as well as a suite of smart-connected consumer electronics. The headphones would be released in the summer with other products following later in the year. While consumer demand is high for true wireless earphones, competition for a slice of the market comes from the biggest names in tech. Pye declined to provide specific examples when asked to explain why investors and consumers should pay attention to what's being created by his team of about 18 working on research and development, end quote. Now, of course, you know, somebody had to snark around all of these sort of odd names, as Dan Seifert snarked on Twitter, quote, nothing buys something. What is this new company? Essentially nothing. And they will sell nothing essential? Microsoft's unified Office mobile app, which combines Word, Excel, and PowerPoint into a single application, is now available on the iPad. Quoting The Verge, This new update means Office is now a full iPad OS app with access to all of the regular tablet variants of Microsoft's productivity suite. The app also bundles in some useful tools designed primarily for mobile tasks. These include the ability to quickly create PDFs or sign documents, converting images to text and tables, and more quick actions. Microsoft has been simplifying its mobile office offerings into this single app, but standalone apps for Word, Excel, and PowerPoint are still available and updated regularly. 
While it took a while for the main Office app to be iPad-friendly, Microsoft has added many iPad-specific features to its Office apps, including mouse and trackpad support recently." End quote. Forthcoming new Samsung laptops are rumored to include OLED screens and S Pen support, according to The Verge. The Galaxy Book Pro and Galaxy Book Pro 360 are on their way, and the 360 is said to be coming with 5G connectivity. Quote, Sam Mobile's report doesn't go into details about the specs of the OLED displays, such as what their resolution or refresh rates will be. However, given the laptops will reportedly be available with 13.3-inch and 15.6-inch screens, it seems unlikely that they'll use the 14-inch 90Hz OLED displays that Samsung Displays said it would be mass manufacturing starting next month. These wouldn't be the first of Samsung's laptops to support the S Pen. Last year's Galaxy Book Flex 5G, the company's first 5G laptop, had one built in, for example. But it comes after the company announced a new pair of S Pen styluses alongside the Galaxy S21 Ultra. There's a standard S Pen that's sold separately from the phone, and later this year it'll be joined by the S Pen Pro, an upgraded version that adds Bluetooth and air gesture support. Earlier this year, Samsung said it's planning to bring S Pen support to additional device categories. Beyond their screens and S Pen support, the new Windows laptops are rumored to be powered by Intel Core i5 and i7 CPUs. The Galaxy Pro 360 is thought to be a convertible 2-in-1 laptop with a 360-degree hinge to allow its screen to be flipped around and used like a tablet." End quote. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months, or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features 
features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should, too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. One of the things that I forgot about antitrust actions when they come is that they can often open up companies not just to legal action from the government, but also to a slew of private litigation that is often kicked off by the details uncovered during the discovery process of the government's lawsuits. And indeed, the New York Times says that revelations from government investigations into big tech recently have paved the way for private antitrust lawsuits against the likes of Google and Facebook already. Lawsuits like this, quote, The operator of a website called Sweepstakes Today, Mr. Sweepy, a nickname used by Craig McDaniel, says Google used its power over online advertising to bleed his website dry. In December, he filed a lawsuit against Google saying he was entitled to substantial damages. His case is one of what is expected to be a host of private antitrust lawsuits stemming from the government cases against Google and Facebook. Already, more than 10 suits echoing the federal and state cases have been filed against one or both of the Silicon Valley giants in recent months. Many of them lean on evidence unearthed by the government investigations. Last month, for example, a media company in West Virginia sued Google and Facebook, arguing that the tech companies had worked together to monopolize the digital ad market. Its lawyers extensively cited evidence from the government cases. Legal experts say many more suits are likely to be filed this year. If successful, private lawsuits could be costly for Facebook and Google. The companies work with millions of advertisers and publishers every year, and Google hosts apps from scores of developers, meaning that there are many potential litigants. The damages could be significant. After the United States sued Microsoft for antitrust violations a generation ago, the company paid $750 million to settle with AOL, at that point the owner of the browser Netscape, which was at the core of the government's case. Private suits follow the government ones for a simple reason. Regulators have distinct advantages when it comes to obtaining evidence. Federal and state investigators can collect internal documents and interview executives before filing a suit. As a result, their complaints are filled with insider knowledge about the companies. Private individuals can seek that kind of evidence only after they file lawsuits. If the government cases succeed against Google or Facebook at trial, the win is likely to bolster the case for private lawsuits, experts said. Lawyers could point to those victories as evidence the company broke the law and move quickly to their primary aim, obtaining monetary damages, end quote. So the point is, big tech is in for a decade of litigation pretty much no matter what happens with these government cases. When Jeff Bezos announced that he was stepping down as CEO of Amazon, I forgot to include potential antitrust stuff coming down the pike as a possible motive for his transition. I did say, of course, that after a while, if you're successful enough, you don't want to deal with the annoying stuff anymore, the day-to-day stuff. You only want to focus on the fun stuff. And believe me, Endless depositions in courtrooms around the world for years and years do not count as fun stuff. All right, there's a new app that you might have heard of because it's getting a fair amount of buzz 
at least over the last week and definitely over the weekend. Dispo. Dispo is, checking my notes, a photo-sharing social app. So performing my usual service of trying to keep you in the know and on the cutting edge of what the kids are up to these days, let me begin by quoting Axios. Dispo, a photo-sharing app co-founded by YouTube star David Dobrik, released a new invite-only test version of its app less than a week ago and hit TestFlight's 10,000-user limit over the weekend after thousands of downloads in Japan. The app takes its concept very seriously. The screen for snapping photos looks like the back of an old-fashioned disposable camera, leaving the user with only one option, turning the flash on and off. There are no other photo editing features. Photos develop in air quotes, the next morning at 9 a.m. local time, and users can create various film roles to put them in. Roles can be shared between users, enabling them to collect photos among friends or other users as a social activity. Users can also like and comment on photos. Public shared roles have also sprung up around various interests, making it possible for users to interact with like-minded people. The original app currently in the App Store didn't have these social sharing features, end quote. Well, that explains my confusion when I tested this out over the weekend. I actually wanted to come here and ask you if anyone knew why I couldn't see anyone else in the app to share my photos with. I've got my roles. I've developed my photos the day after shooting them, but I can't do anything with them yet because I don't see anybody else. Sounds like it's because I'm not cool enough to be let in on this beta test yet. Though if I'm missing something about that, please let me know. So, does this sound like a fad? Maybe. But then I read Justin Potts's bull case for Dispo that he posted to Medium. Could Dispo be cleverly pulling together several different current threads? Quote, To many, Dispo looks like just another camera app, but what's special about it isn't one singular feature. It's about how it bundles them together. Like Huji, Dispo lets you take vibey photos with a retro feel, like back when people took photos with an actual film camera. Like TikTok and Snapchat, it forces authenticity. Like Instagram, it lets you share your life. And like group chats, it lets you stay connected with your friends and communities in an intimate way. Dispo is centered around things called roles. You can think of these as photo albums. In addition to being a nifty way to categorize photos, roles provide an intimate way to stay connected with friends. People are creating group roles for photos with each other. They're sharing handwritten notes. They're sharing the lattes they make when they wake up in the morning. Unlike Instagram, there's an unlimited number of contexts you can post in. Until now, posts have been limited to your public feed, your Finsta from fake Insta, an account you use for your 2am kind of photos, or your close friends' stories, none of which capture all the context of our day-to-day experiences. So Dispo has communities, which are being built around the themed roles. Architecture roles, design roles, plant roles, pet roles, It's hard for me to imagine a way to discover communities or other roles isn't already in the works. Dispo hits all the marks it needs on the product side, but what I find most compelling is the new user behaviors that it creates. Your photos don't develop until the next morning, so you're forced to live in the moment. Snap it and forget it. There's no pressure to get the perfect shot. It's a focus on authenticity over appearance. The authenticity is present not only in the photos you take, but in the in-person experiences you have while you 
using the app. When you can't edit your photos, much less see what they look like, there's nothing to do but go back to what you were doing before, watching the concert, laying with your friends at the park, being with your dog. And because that experience is the same for everyone, you can't help but appreciate the photos from others more than you normally would. They feel more immersive, more genuine, more in the moment. They didn't take the photo because they wanted to flex, they took it because it was worth taking and worth waiting until the next morning for. New behaviors like this are important for creating affinity. Snapchat's UI was purposefully confusing. The learned behavior of swiping to navigate made early adopters feel in the know, and the knowledge was passed down to new users like it was tradition. When you pair these new behaviors with network effects and retention hacks, your photos develop the same time every morning, you start to form habits in your users' daily lives, end quote. So... If both Instagram and Snapchat got traction originally for being sort of anti-Facebooks, more ephemerality in the case of the latter, less junk posts, just photos in the case of the former, might Dispo be the first example of an anti-Instagram app? Gen Z zagging away from the aesthetic of their older siblings, much as the millennials zagged away from us Gen Xers. If there's one rule that is pretty much held true so far over the last 25 years of the internet era, every generation feels a need to have their own platform. From AIM and GeoCities, into MySpace and Facebook, into Snapchat and Instagram, and now to TikTok and maybe Dispo. We shall see. Thank you to all of you who participated in our two clubhouse rooms last night. I'd say one was considerably more successful than the other, but that's kind of the point. We're experimenting with formatting, and believe me, we learned a lot last night. We do want to do another post-show wrap-up sometime this week, so watch for that. Talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.